Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to the word of God this morning, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction on our time together. Father, we're so thankful for your word that in a world of uncertainty and a world of chaos, we have a place to go for refuge, that in your word we have eternal truth. In your word we learn about you and we learn about reality, and it is only when we conform our thinking to your thinking and conform our thoughts to reality as you have created it that we can live in a way that uh, honors and glorifies you. Father, we are thankful that we have uh, your word. We're thankful for what it reveals to us. And, Father, as we study today and look at various lessons uh, that are have clear application to our own spiritual life and the uh, angelic conflict within which we all live, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the areas in which we need to apply the word and that we might have the spiritual courage and fortitude to make that application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, where we have a warfare event taking place in the Old Testament where the enemy of Israel, the enemy of uh, Judah specifically, Israel had already been, the northern kingdom had already been completely defeated and deported by the Assyrian Empire some uh, 21 years earlier. Now in this, uh, this uh, second invasion, now led by Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, which was the greatest, most powerful empire at that time, their army was virtually undefeated as they expanded uh, in various directions, but primarily towards the south and west, and they had, about this same time, defeated the armies uh, and chariots of Egypt. And they have locked up, as Sennacherib put it in one of his uh, later accounts, locked up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. And they had laid siege to Jerusalem. And at the beginning of this siege, in order to try to uh, easily make his conquest, he has sent his uh, top three uh, leaders to make a case against uh, Israel's ongoing uh, resistance. 
and he has sent them in order to propagandize them. And the way that they approach this particular conquest is a, a way that is uh, common to every single believer. We were all involved in warfare. These Old Testament examples, whether we're dealing with Joshua and the invasion of the land of Canaan back in the book of Joshua, whether you're dealing with various battles that take place during the period of the judges or later with David, every time you're in a battle scenario in the, in the scriptures, there's always application to the believer's life because the concept of warfare or battle is one of the primary metaphors that the scripture used to describe uh, the ongoing struggle or challenge of the spiritual life. We often talk about this in, in terms such as the angelic conflict, which emphasizes the origin of this uh, battle in terms of uh, Lucifer's sin of pride and arrogance against God, uh, his rebellion against God in which he led one-third of the angels uh, to rebel against God, and the outworking of that in history, and the outworking of that as it relates to the believer's spiritual life, it is often referred to as spiritual warfare. Uh, if you take, the sum, take a summary of what the Bible says about spiritual warfare, uh, the scriptures emphasize that we fight three enemies. Two of them are external. One of them is internal. They are the uh, world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is an external concept relating to the ways in which human beings try to uh, make sense out of life and try to organize the uh, various details of life in terms of a philosophy of life that gives them hope and meaning and, uh, and gives them abilities to solve problems and challenges in their own life apart from God. And so the world system is just a general term describing a multitude of world religions and philosophies that are invented by human beings in order to make life work without having to submit to the authority of the unique God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully equal with him in deity as a member of the Trinity to go to the cross and to die on the cross for our sins. And so uh, we are to... Uh, submit to his authority, and the way God looks at reality, uh, we often describe as divine viewpoint. All of these other systems that we talk about under the terminology of the world system, or sometimes I use the phrase cosmic thinking from the Greek word cosmos for world, uh, begins with a K, not a C as it does in English, uh, to emphasize that all of these different ways in which man tries to make life work apart from God. As we study satanic thinking as, it's, as it is uh, described in the scripture, the emphasis ha is twofold. One is antagonism towards God, and the second is an emphasis on autonomy. Those two A's uh, help you remember that, antagonism and autonomy, and that is characteristic of every kind of human system of thought that is antagonistic to God. In, in, in autonomy, it emphasizes man's ability to solve the problems, whatever they may be, spiritual or physical, ultimately apart from God, emphasizing human self-ability. And antagonism to God is always the consequence of that because God is trying to teach us to be dependent upon him 
as creatures created in his image and likeness with a mission to rule over the uh, over the planet, to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. And in rebellion, man seeks to do this in autonomy from God, and so there's constantly this warfare that takes place. So when we come to any passage in Scripture where there is warfare between uh, one nation, I mean, I'm talking about physical warfare, one nation and the people of God, there are going to be principles there that relate to the spiritual warfare uh, which we all uh, face. And no matter what we face in the spiritual life, whether it's uh, a challenge from the world system, a challenge from uh, Satan or demons who are behind, ultimately behind the world system, or whether it's just a challenge from the, our internal enemy, the third enemy, which is the flesh or the sin nature, it doesn't really matter what the source of the attack is. The primary objective is always to distract us from dependence upon God. And the key word in Scripture that we have for dependence upon God is faith, faith or trust. And last uh, Sunday, I looked at three different words that are used in the Hebrew to, to emphasize trust. And these words emphasize leaning upon God, having our confidence uh, based upon God, and the idea of stability that comes from God. Uh, and that is becomes our source of stability. So those three words that we looked at last time, uh, for faith, emphasize those three dimensions of faith. And the primary word that we found is that word batach, which is uh, used more than the others and is uh, used in this passage, emphasized confident reliance upon God. And this is crystallized for us in the challenge that comes from uh, the Rabshaka, as this is explained as we look down in in verse, uh, in verse 18, or rather in verse uh, 19. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence, and that's a form of the word batach, what confidence is this in which you trust? And that's the verb uh, batach there. And last time I used this chart to put up here that, emphasizes this, the, the conflict. On the left side, I show the parallel between ser- the uh, serpent's question or Satan's question to Eve in the garden, did God say? It is questioning the authority of God, the veracity of God's word. The Rabshaka asking the question, where is your confidence? And today this is the same question that comes out of the cosmic system around us. The cosmic system around us has rejected the reality of God as an independent authority and entity beyond the creation. What we see from most people, and it has infiltrated into the thinking of many Christians in the church, is that the God that we worship is just part of a number of other equal options. And that's how the Rabshaka really thinks of God when he is challenging the uh, the Israelites here in Judah. And the, the, the question for us is always a question of, are we going to depend upon God and his word, or are we going to depend upon something within the creation, whether it's our own personal resources, our own personality, our own intelligence, friends, family, technology, 
money, impersonal fate, or uh, modern psychology. And I use that term modern psychology to relate to basically the idea of talk therapy, that the real solution to life's problems, that whenever you face a problem in life, well, let's go see a psychiatrist instead of what it was for centuries within Christianity. Let's go to the Bible. Where's your source of truth? Is it in uh, psychiatric systems, which are all based on models of human behavior. There's over 200 different models of human behavior in various systems of psychology and probably uh, hundreds, if not over a 1,000 different therapies that are based on that. And none of those are consistent with one another. They're all different. And most of them, if not all of them, are not consistent with the Word of God at all because they're not based on a proper understanding of the nature and problem that man has, which is, which is sin. And so in verse 19, the Rob Shaka focuses the issue. And that's something we always have to recognize. Whenever you are facing a problem, a challenge in life, and by that I don't mean the big challenges, uh, every day it may be just a simple challenge of the fact that you're tired, you're hungry, uh, you're grumpy, and you have to deal with somebody who is not quite as on the ball or not quite as bright, uh, can't speak English quite as clearly as you would like over the helpline uh, with any kind of technology. See, you all know what I'm talking about. Those are challenges. Now, are we going to respond as God would respond in terms of grace and humility and love and kindness, or are we going to try to solve the problem through our own attempts to uh, intimidate and to... Uh, sound off and to be angry with, with people like that and to show our uh, superiority based on our irritability. So the issue is on what, con- what are you trusting ultimately? And when the Rob Shaka does this, he is, he is right because he focuses the issue that every challenge that you face, small or great, the issue ultimately is theology. Ultimately, it's theological. It always comes down to, are you going to do it God's way or your way? And that's, that's the challenge. And we have to think of it that way. That needs to be the first thought that comes to our mind. That's part of spiritual growth is to get to the point where that thought coming to our mind isn't the thought we think about the next day when we go, you know, I, that, I should have thought about that first then I wouldn't be in the mess I'm in now, perhaps. So the focus on any problem is always, what does God want me to do? What might be God's purpose for me to be in this situation with this particular individual or uh, whatever the case may be? And so the Rob Shaka uh, focuses the question for us in verse 19 in terms of theology. In whom do we trust? That was the focus Last week, and I concluded with these verses as a reminder in uh, Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord, that is, to rely upon him, batach, to have confidence in him. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Now, I chose this specifically because that's what's going on in Second Kings 18, the argument that the uh, Rabshaka is presenting is an argument that they need to trust in the government of Assyria. They need to put their trust in the powers of man in terms of its manifestation in the Assyrian Empire. 
It's a question of God versus human empire. Now, what I mean when I'm using this term empire this morning is in a particularly nuanced fashion. There have been empires that don't fit this category. There have been, but most empires ultimately fall into this through arrogance. And by this, I mean an, an empire that is asserting that it can provide that which only God can provide, that it is the source of happiness. It can provide a utopic environment that will satisfy everybody's needs and everybody's wants and desires, and that the source of real happiness and meaning and stability in life is going to come from the government and the programs that this, that the government offers. And that's ultimately what the Rabshaka is offering to the Israelites who are trapped like a bird in a cage uh, in Jerusalem. His, he is, his message, though, does emphasize the spiritual truth, which is trust. And he, from his viewpoint, now he represents human viewpoint. And it's important to look at his strategy here because the strategy that he is adopting to distract uh, Hezekiah and the Jews from trusting in God is a strategy that comes at us every day from either external sources or from just our own sin nature. It is a, a strategy that is designed to distract us from trusting exclusively in God. And so last time I focused on what he said about Hezekiah uh, down in verse uh, 22. Verse 22, he says, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Now, always pay attention to those uppercase caps that are there for Lord. That means that Lord is a translation of the personal name for God in the Old Testament represented by four letters, Y-H-W-H, usually pronounced uh, Yahweh. And this is the personal name of God. This is what distinguishes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from all the other gods. Our English word God is just a generic word for for some sort of supreme deity and can be applied to in any kind of religion, to any kind of of God, G-O-D. And usually the word G-O-D translates the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the plural form of El, which was also a name for the uh, supreme uh, deity in the Canaanite religion, comparable to Zeus in Greek mythology or Jupiter in Roman mythology. Uh, El was the uh, father god. Actually, I mean, that's wrong. El is related to Uranus, the father of Zeus or Jupiter. Zeus, Jupiter, Baal are basically comparable, and El was the ultimate supreme god that... uh, uh, preceded Baal and was the father of Baal in Canaanite worship. So it was these various high places that were the idolatrous high places that the Israelites had erected uh, around Jerusalem, where they worshipped the fertility gods and goddesses, the Ashtoreth and the uh, and the Baalim, the false gods and goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon, and so. Uh, the Rabshaka, just like most unbelievers, is approaching the problem as if there is no distinction between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
and the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of the Assyrians or the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of any other people. He is, he's reducing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to just a, a little lowercase g-o-d as if he's no different from any of these, any of these other gods. And this is typical of human viewpoint strategies. Because once you reduce the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to just sort of a generic uh, God like any other God, then what you have all, you've already taken the fatal step strategically because you have put yourself in a position of authority to judge God. That's what happened with Eve when she stepped into uh, Satan's trap in the Garden of Eden when he raised the question and said, did God really say this? She He's putting her in a position where she has to judge God, and she should have just avoided the question and said, leave, get out of here. But instead, she answered the question. Once she begins to think that way, she's already crossed uh, crossed the line into setting herself up over God. And this is what always happens. Once we remove the God of the Bible, the creator God of the Old Testament, from his position of being a distinct and unique God, over all of creation, once we remove him, something has to fill that vacuum. And that something that fills the vacuum is always something that's generated out of the arrogance of the human soul, whether it's some false god or goddess or whether it's an idol made out of wood or uh, wood or metal or stone or something like that, or whether it's an intellectual idol of the mind or whether it has to do with some other feature of creation. Once we take God out of the picture as the ultimate authority distinct from creation, you always substitute something else. And man loves to put himself on that throne and then worship himself in some way or another. And in this context, the what is being put in that place as a replacement for God is really the power and the authority of the Assyrian Empire. This is a trap to which many governments have uh, walked into down through the ages where they begin to think they can solve all the problems and they will bring in the uh, ultimate utopic kingdom. I mean, this was part of the idea behind the thousand-year Reich of the uh, Nazis in Nazi Germany. Now, to put this in a chart-like form, what we have here representing divine viewpoint is we see Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as being distinct from all of creation. And in this chart, he is outside of the box of the other gods. He is unique and distinct, and you can't make the mistake of identifying him or confusing him with the generic product. But what happens within a human viewpoint is you have this scenario where Yahweh notices I've moved him down into the box, lowercase letters, and you have, and he's just one of many options, and all options are equal. And in human viewpoint, all roads eventually lead to the same destiny, and whether you're worshiping uh, Yahweh or you're worshiping Baal or you're worshiping uh, one of the Hindu deities or one of the other deities, they ultimately all lead to the same place. And this is the mistake of equating all religions to be basically the same. And this is the idea that you find behind the uh, argument of the Rabshaka. 
Now, before I go any further with that, I want to remind you of a couple of different different principles, that whenever we are facing a challenge in life, we ultimately put our hope and our confidence in something to solve the problem. Often we put it in our own personality or our own native ability or intelligence or in some sort of uh, human viewpoint, uh, stress management system, something of that nature, rather than God. In any situation, when we are putting our ultimate confidence in something other than God and his word, we are divorcing ourselves from reality. The divine viewpoint is that God is eternal and distinct from all of creation. He is unique, and he is not like any other God, and because he is the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, he defines and determines the role and the function and the purpose of every cell within that structure. Now, when we come along and reject his description... In other words, we take the, uh, we bought a new product and we got this complex product in front of us. We just open the box. We take it out of the box. The first thing we do is we throw away the owner's manual and we start trying to figure out how this thing is supposed to work and how we can utilize it and improve our lives without paying any attention to the owner's manual. And you know the result. The result is always chaos, and eventually when things get really bad, you have to go pull that owner's manual out of the trash can. The owner's manual is comparable, uh, comparable to the scriptures. The, owner manual, the owner's manual defines reality. When you don't pay attention to the owner's manual, you're operating on arrogance, thinking you can, by your own intuition, figure out how everything works. And to the degree that you're living uh, on, on your arrogance, you are uh, separating yourself from reality. You know the old story that the person who is, who is uh, creating an alternative reality is, is really a neurotic. But the person who lives as if that uh, neurotic creation is actually real is a psychotic. And so most people who are living on some sort of alternate reality are just uh, living on the basis of their neurosis. But when they move into the castle in the, in the sky that they create, uh, the person who's conducting the tour up there is the psychiatrist, and they're now psychotic because they're living on a false reality. But that's every single human being who's rejected the truth of God's word is ultimately has had a psychotic break. They are divorced from reality and living as, as if their fantasy is reality. Now, that applies to every one of us because this is true of anyone living apart from God's word. And when believers live apart from God's word and they live apart from the truth of God's word, they're living, they're basically said, I am so omniscient that I can redefine reality on my own terms and live as if that's true and it won't fall apart. And so that's what's happened in Hezekiah, with Hezekiah. Earlier, he was very dependent upon God. Then he became arrogant, and he began to lean upon his own resources to solve the problem of Assyria. The first attempt was to pay off Assyria through the uh, tribute. For years, he didn't pay the tribute, but then when uh, he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, he, um, and he's about to get slapped by, uh, by Assyria, he, begins, he pays off 
and does so by taking the gold and the silver out of the temple, God's treasure, as it were, to pay off, uh, to pay off the enemy. Uh, then, instead of relying upon God exclusively, he enters into a treaty with the Egyptians, and he's going to depend upon the Egyptian military might to come to his aid. But it is in this, in this section between Sennacherib's challenge and the reality that finally comes to uh, uh, Hezekiah that he realizes that the divine solution is the only solution, and we get into that in the next chapter. But the two principles we l- learn from this is that when we are in carnality, we're always, to one degree or another, separated or divorced from reality, and the more entrenched carnality and arrogance become, the more divorced from reality our thinking is. And the second is that when the believers divorce from reality, our problem-solving strategies will always begin and end with the finite resources of our own thinking. Now, when you face challenges in life, do you want to depend on finite resources or infinite resources? That's the option. Whether we're going to depend on God who's omniscient, therefore he knows all the issues related to the problem, and he is also omnipotent so he can solve the problem, or are we going to rely on finite uh, human reasoning and finite human ability? We have to recognize that whenever we are depending on the broken reed of human resources, it's always within the framework of a counterfeit reality. So these are counterfeit resources. They're counterfeit helps. They don't really work, but they have the trappings of working. They work for a while. They make you feel good for a a while. They relax you for a while. That while may last for several decades. But ultimately, they are all broken reeds like Egypt, and they will all eventually collapse. Now, one of the other things we learn and see illustrated in this passage is these counterfeit resources are always wrapped up in some sort of religious garb. They're always wrapped up in some sort of religious garb, and we see that in the rationale of the um, of the Rab Shaka here, because as he presents this this his argument, he argues that he is the one who is actually doing the will of God. This is down in verse 25. He says, have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? In other words, would I do this without the Lord? No. God's behind me. You got to get on. You want to be on God's side? Surrender. Come on over to my side. That's his argument. The Lord, the Rob Shaka says, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. I'm the one doing God's will, not Hezekiah. So you have to have the discernment to realize who's, uh, what religious garb is false versus the claims of Scripture. We have to recognize that we can't base it on pragmatics, what seems to work for us, because that is always deceptive. All these human viewpoint strategies are all broken reeds. They never work, and they never will work in an ultimate sense. But they all have certain elements of truth in them. And even the Rob Shaka recognizes that because to some degree he seems to at least give lip service to the idea that he, that the Assyrian army is there, uh, by God's permission. And that's also sort of a, sort of the subtext behind verses 25 
and 26. Now, the human viewpoint solution that he's presenting to uh, Judah and to Hezekiah is that they need to just surrender. Just give up. Quit trusting in this God. He can't really save you. You need to just surrender. Just give up. Come on over. Trust in us. Rely on us. We'll give you what you think your God's going to give you. And so the human viewpoint solution that is offered here is to succumb to the authority of Sennacherib. And he even says, see, we can give you the powerful things that you don't have on your own. We can give you horses and chariots. Now, if you're an Israelite and you're thinking theologically, this should wake you up. Because when he says, we will give you horses and chariots, who is the horse, who are the horses and chariots of Israel? This phrase is referred to, uh, several times in 2 Kings chapter 2 and 2 Kings 13 in relation to Elijah and Elisha, that it is the prophets who are the horses and the chariots of Israel. They represent God, the real military might. It's a figure of speech referring to military might. The real military power is in the is in the Word of God. It is in God who is behind, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is behind the prophets. And so the human viewpoint solution is, we'll give you our military strength, we'll give you some horses and chariots, and if you were thinking in terms of divine viewpoint, what you would hear is, we're going to give you what, what your God says he, he will provide for you. So again, we see that the human viewpoint solution is wrapping itself up in religious terminology. And also, this religious terminology in, involves the offer of various, uh, various universals, various universals that uh, are only supplied by God. Now, in the process of doing this, by t- looking at God in this way is just equivalent to all the other generic gods. The uh, Rob Shaka makes the argument in verses 33 to 35 that uh, this is where you really see this argument develop, that your God's not any different from any other God. It's not any different from the gods of, of uh, Hamath and Arpad or Hena. I have any of the other places we've conquered, so why do you think uh, they're going to uh, the, uh, the, your gods any any different? That's the point of verse 35. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And what you have basically is this chiasm that's set up in the, this argument. Uh, that that you should read this a. The, the first statement is your a statement. The second statement is your b statement. The c statement's the third one. Then you have b prime, which is parallel to the first B statement, and then C, uh, then A prime, which is parallel to the first one. The focal point of the argument is what you find in the center, and that is that the gods of these other peoples, the gods of Hamath, Arphad, etc., they cannot deliver, so why do you think God can deliver? So he says that instead of trusting in your God, trust in Assyria. This is emphasized back in verses 23. Uh, through 20, uh, 23 through 25. What he's basically saying is that we can provide the solution. Look down at verse 31. 31, he says, Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, 
and every one of you from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. What's he offering? If you will just surrender to me, I will give you everything you need in life. I'm going to give you universal health care. I'm going to provide for you in retirement and Social Security and everything else that you need, and you don't have to ever work or worry about anything else. That's the modern version. Not too many decades ago, the political promise was a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. But this is the ancient version, and it's you're going to have a, a, a grapevine for wine, you're going to have a fig tree, and you're going to have uh, your own cisterns and plenty of water. And it is the government... It's the empire that is going to be the solution to all your problems and bring in this utopic state. Of course, it's all false. It's all wrong. They couldn't do it, number one. And even if they tried, it would fail because that's not the uh, uh, capability of the government. But governments and empires have a tendency to take on messianic roles, that they are going to provide what God has said only the Messiah can provide only the greater son of David can provide. It is only when we have the uh, messianic kingdom in the millennium that we're going to achieve these kinds of things. You're not going to have peace, prosperity, and happiness until Jesus comes back in this earth. You can't get it through government programs and through government solutions. There's a name for that. It's called socialism, and socialism is... Uh, 180 degrees contrary to anything taught in the Word of God. And socialism is a destruction of human freedom, whereas biblical truth always promotes, uh, always promotes human freedom. Interestingly enough, uh, and we'll, when I get these, we're gonna, I'll promote them, but Labor Day this year, uh, North Stonian Bible Church up in uh, Connecticut always has a Labor Day and a Memorial Day conference, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the classes this year at their Labor Day conference because Charlie Clough is going to do about seven or eight hours on why socialism is the enemy of biblical truth. And uh, he's been doing a lot of work on that. So that's going to be a tremendous series that we'll all want to hear once that becomes available, and I'll be sending out uh, information on that once that is, uh, that's possible. But the root of the problem that we see is always a challenge to God and a person's thinking about God. And the scripture emphasizes that the God of the Bible isn't like any other God. You can't make him like any other God, which is always the attempt of unbelievers and those who've rejected biblical truth. Look at passages such as Deuteronomy 6.4. This is a key passage for uh, in Judaism. It is called the Shema because the first word here is a translation of the Hebrew word Shema, which is the word for hearing, the verb for hearing, and here it's a command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, this translation comes out of the uh, 1990s, I forget which year, edition of the, of the Tanakh, which is the Jewish Publication Society's uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Notice it's not the, the typical translation you find, Hero Israel, the Lord our, is our God, the Lord is one, which has been used to emphasize sort of a, a Unitarian monotheism. But when you recognize how echad, the word translated alone or one, is used, it emphasizes a, a, a uniqueness 
or in this case it's translated alone, which I think gets the sense of the passage. It's not talking about a singular monotheism. It is not in contrast to Trinitarianism. Psalm 86, 8 says, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. Psalm 89, 6, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord, who among the sons of the mighty, that is the reference to the angels, can be likened to the Lord? And so what we see here is that it is only the Lord who can deliver us and only his solution can give a lasting solution. This is learned by Israel in the next chapter in 2 Kings 19.19. We read at the end of Hezekiah's prayer, he says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Hezekiah shifts back to dependence upon God, and this is exemplified in his prayer for God's deliverance, and he recognizes again that the issue is always the character of God. The challenge in every spiritual conflict is always the veracity and the integrity of God, And the only path to real spiritual success and victory in any kind of of battle is in recognizing the unique and distinct God of the Bible and relying upon his word. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study your word this morning, to be reminded of your uniqueness and the uniqueness of Scripture that we can trust your word exclusively and that we can depend upon you exclusively and that whenever we look to aid from anything else, we are leaning on a broken reed and the ultimate end of that will be misery and self-destruction. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the fact that we need to learn your word, the fact that we need to depend upon you and we need to apply uh, your promises faithfully in our lives that we may glorify you in all that we say and do. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never uh, trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. Scripture says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It is the the divine solution for all of our problems because at the cross he took our punishment upon himself that we might be able to have eternal life simply by trusting in him. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning and that the Holy Spirit would bring them back to our mind, that we may apply the principles in our daily spiritual warfare. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.